conversations and meditations. With Justin Martin. Welcome to Conversations and Meditations, dear friends. I'm Justin Martin and I'm so excited that you've joined me for this offering. We're going to get to meet some of the most interesting and heart-focused people that I know during these conversations. The intention of this podcast is for us to discover and share the histories, beliefs and practices of the beautiful souls that I'm fortunate enough to call friends. So settle in, slow it down and let's get started. I'd like to welcome Ruth French. Um, Ruth is a, a long-serving member of the Riverdale community and she's currently tasked with being the spiritual focus for the EMSA organization here at Riverdale. Ruth, welcome. Thank you, Justin. I feel honoured to be the first guest on this podcast series and I might have to take up listening to podcasts. <laughs> at least one. Um, so yeah, so welcome Ruth. I, I, I thought it, it seemed fitting to me that you would be the first guest that we would have on the podcast, given the length of service that you've offered to Riverdale and your ongoing commitment to particularly the Sunday service offering here. It's a key aspect of, of what Riverdale offers and it's it's probably the the most readily available thing for people to attend on a regular basis and connect to the emissaries. And so I thought it, we could start off, if you don't mind, like a prequel or a sequel type of arrangement. If we could start with where you are now in terms of what you're offering at Riverdale, and then from there we might go back to how you came to be here. Thank you. So currently I focus the service that happens at 10 o'clock every Sunday morning. Every week we have a Zoom service and have international guests, interstate guests, and people come in person to the sanctuary at Riverdale. This goes for about an hour and we have speakers, usually from someone from the States, from Colorado, often someone from Canada and local people, including those interstate here in Australia, speaking at the time. And the service time's a wonderful mix of inspirational themes, music, videos, just a great opportunity to recognise the freedom we have to live into our magnificence. That's, that's beautiful, Ruth. Thank you for that. So, yeah, I mean, the, the Zoom technology, we've, we've recently upgraded some of that offering as well through the hardware that we're using mm. to, to broadcast that. I know that's been probably not as much of a challenge as you would possibly expected. How are you, how are you finding that transition? I've heard anecdotally from people experiencing on the other side as viewers that it, it's a much improved service. Absolutely. We had people comment just yesterday, our second service, using that the technology, what a difference it's made to their experience. Oh, so that was very encouraging and very glad to have that feedback. Certainly it expands the range of what we can offer, having that easy access to YouTube particularly. The range of what's offered there is just magnificent. So it expands. We used videos yesterday and music and the sound is excellent. And to think that so one of our older participants wasn't well enough to be with us, but she was in her home and able to participate in the service. Um, so it's got many pluses. Yeah, but 
Yes, big cheers for the the new technology. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, that's Mm. fantastic. As I stated at the beginning, you know, that's a a bit of a summary of where we are today. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously it's been a journey to get here. Some questions that I've got for you that I don't know the answers to. I mean, mm-hmm. we've known each other for five years now, so yes. uh, this might be contrived in some regards because I might know the answer to a few questions. But mm-hmm. something that I'm not aware of is your your personal heritage. In it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand that that you grew up in sort of country Australia, largely. Mm-hmm. I assume your parents were born in Australia. I was just wondering how how many generations you've been in Australia. If you could tell me a little bit about your your heritage. Certainly. So I'm likely to be a generation where being a descendant of convicts is acceptable. Yes. And on my father's side, both of his parents were descended from convicts. Wow. So on my grandmother's side, it was the great-great-grandfather, and I'm not sure what he got up to. But in Australia, he ended up near Swan Hill and with his son developed irrigation before the Chaffee brothers had in Mildura, became very wealthy, so the the son of the convict in that part. Mm -hmm. Um, On my father's side, uh, well, these are both on my father's side, but going back through the male line, the convict ancestor was sent here in 1816 for stealing two sheep, and that was such a big crime that he'd been sentenced to hang. And the newspaper reported that it was as the judge's last case he had a sleepless night and reduced the sentence from hanging to 14 years in Australia. Oh, I know which I'd prefer. 14 years in paradise? or That's right. So he'd been sent to New South Wales but then further sent down to Tasmania because they needed a workforce. Right. And, um, yes, I think he was in trouble with the law further. So I think he might have been had some rebellious blood. But I feel that people descended from convicts have some uh, strength because they survived the trip out here and the treatment when they got here. On my mother's side, it was more spiritual, you might say. Her mother was Welsh and my mother's grandfather came to Borough because he'd been a slate miner. So getting a mining job was part of it, but he, he could read and he was a passionate Christian and he went to Melbourne and helped found the Welsh Church which still exists in the centre of Melbourne ended up in Ballarat in Victoria and the the ones from Tasmania ended up in Victoria as well and I'm mostly Victorian. I was born in Melbourne nine months and a day after my father returned from the Second World War but he hadn't seen active service. He was in the army and held in reserve and yeah. Fortunately. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So that's some of my background. I was born in Melbourne and then with both parents' teachers. Teaching was a profession where people were moved. It was how they gained promotion. So I've lived in every part of Victoria and I love, love it. I didn't like it when I, it would be announced that we were due to shift and move to another town. But after a while I realised... Oh, this is the town I didn't want to come to, and I love it. Yes. So I recognised that I could adjust. I think there are some downsides to having a lot of moves and having to get used to a new group of students 
And for the latter part of my secondary schooling, my father was my school principal too. It's not all a plus. Uh, have you done your homework? I haven't got any. I don't believe you. <laughs> I was thankful that if there were issues at school, he didn't bring them up at home. Sure. He, he, I was grateful for that acknowledgement. How much do you think that experience of regularly moving shaped the person, the adult that you became? I guess it has meant that I feel that I can shift and I will make a life with a new community. But I think the downside is that at some level I didn't give myself fully to a place because I felt this will pass. Yes. I'll have to let go of this. And I can see that pattern has, you know, still I have to be conscious, bring it to mind and recognise this is life. Right now you're living it here. Doesn't matter where you're living it. Put yourself in more fully. Mm. Sure. Mm. So you, you were mentioning, you know, that you came to realise that really home is where you find yourself. The, the, the actual place that that might be is less relevant. Is there something in your spiritual path where you would say that realisation first came to light, relating back to your childhood? Yes, uh, very much so. So I, uh, my parents were Christian. They went to church. Uh, my father had been influenced by a Methodist minister when he was at university and my mother was the daughter of a Baptist minister. So that was very much part of my upbringing, Sunday school, going to church regularly. Did you enjoy that? Often not. Sure. <laughs> it often, I often just thought it made me think I was a bad person. Right. There was something about sin that concerned me. I think I was fairly serious at some level as a child. My father was certainly quiet and reserved and he'd come out of the army. He felt that was his, um, how he thought children should be raised. Do as you're told. Um, Consider other people. And that doesn't strengthen a sense of power to Mm. make your own decisions. It was always, it was far safer to Mm. reference the discipline and stick within those boundaries. When I was in my later 20s was when I first lived on my own to move back to Melbourne for some further study. And here I was living in a flat on my own and I was totally lost. I didn't know how to do it. Um, I'd lived in country towns. I'd lived with other people, shared houses. I was single. And... Certainly, suicide came to mind. thought that was perhaps that nobody cared was how I felt. It wasn't true, but it was the story from the headspace I was in. And What, what age? That was around 20? No, around 26, 27. So yeah. I'd been in country towns, lived in shared houses. There was always somebody around. School was close by, so I was working as a school teacher yeah. myself by then. I can remember it coming to me quite clearly. God loves you. Wow. Now, where that why it was God, it wasn't Jesus loves you. It was God loves you, and it was very general. But it was enough to have helped me hang on. I guess it was about that time, and with the depression I was feeling, that I discovered. Dr Francis McNabb, who was a fairly controversial minister at a church in the heart of Melbourne. Okay. And I actually heard him speak 
about three years ago, I was back in Melbourne, and at 85, he's still the minister. He was still the minister. I believe he's retired since then. When I went those few years ago, he had four giant kettle drums as part of the church orchestra that could have been <laughs> invited people to raise their voices with the singing so it could be heard at Flinders Street Station. He still had such passionate energy and he was, a, I think, the president of the Psychologists Association at the same time. Right. The rest of the ministers fraternal, I think, many of them questioned how he approached things, but he was very open about life. What aspect of what he offered made him controversial? He would do things like interview a couple where somebody had been unfaithful and talk of their experience and possibly what brought them back together. or right. um, On the radio or something? In church. Okay, yep. You know, he, I'd come across him when I saw the advertisement for his service mm-hmm. in the Melbourne Age and it was a question, nearly always a question, was something about, something like, have you lost your identity? Do you know who you are? Or words to that effect that absolutely went right to the heart of my confusion. Yes, he he had begun the Ken Miller Institute, so it was a very early centre for people to go and build self-esteem or learn meditation. Or, so this was the 70s and... Yes, a a profound shift in my life. And while I could attend his church uh, and mix socially with people who were open to exploring life and questioning assumptions, I found that helpful. And it didn't mean that things didn't go off the rails further uh, at later stages in my life. Certainly in the 80s, I'd been in India for a few months, came back. It was while I was on long service leave for teaching. May I ask what motivated you to go to India? Yes, interestingly, when um, my long service leave was coming up, initially I thought, oh, good, I'll just take the time off, stay in my home and be free to... I could help out with some things back at school. But then I'd connected with a group run by World Vision. It was called... World Vision International, and there was a club in Shepparton, which is where I lived by then. It was a women's group to raise funds for World Vision Project. And the woman who'd founded it uh, offered a trip for three and a half weeks to Asia. So we actually flew out of Melbourne at, on Christmas Eve and landed in Colombo, Sri Lanka, at about 11.30 at night. And I thought we'd hit a revolution. There were so many crackers going off. I didn't realise it was just crackers, but it just, I thought, it was a series of bombs. As we went from the airport to our hotel in Colombo, we spent a week in Sri Lanka. I was so... This was my introduction to Asia, and I was so impressed by the Sri Lankans. Well, did you find it at first intimidating? Well, yes, we had almost as many servants around us as at breakfast time. The sheets in the hotels had rips in them. You know, it was mm-hmm. fairly poor. But the quality of care was at the opposite end of the scale. So caring, beautiful smiles, delicious tropical fruits. The people we met who were being supported in some way by a World Vision project um, were intrigued. 
about us. And what year was this? This was nineteen eighty-three in January of nineteen eighty-three. Yep. Yes, so not quite forty years ago. Then we flew to Madras for a day and up to Delhi, and we had a mix of being tourists and going to projects. I fell for one of the World Vision staff. I don't blame you. In Delhi, <laughs> that black velvet skin and that <laughs> caring approach. So that started me thinking, oh, I might not just stay in Shepparton for my long service leave later mm-hmm. in the year. Maybe I'll go back to India. And I heard a program promoting walking in the lower Himalayas. Yes. On a, a trek from Kashmir. Well, it was all in Kashmir. And so I started to plan things I might do in India and having Ramesh as a connection in Delhi was special and he was able to organise some volunteer work that I did for a time in one of Mother Teresa's homes in Delhi and I did, I was able to buy, I think it was a Fly India ticket that allowed me unlimited flights. Oh wow. For $400 for three weeks. So I did 12 flights in that time and I went from Delhi across to Calcutta and then right down to the south. And So an interesting time. I loved and hated India. Yes. Yeah, I can relate. <laughs> that mix. I'd rented out my house in Shepparton and my hotel stays in Delhi were cheaper rate per night that mm-hmm. I was getting for my house in Shepparton. So I was able to really be part of get used to Indian society with having an Indian often connected with me. I um, rode on the back of a motorcycle quite a bit, um, but I did things independently too. So the trek that I did was, I think, about three weeks with Kashmiri, who sprinted up the hills and smoked Sure. (laughs) (laughs) at night. And as we struggled up, I think we got to about 14,000 feet, so... High for an Australian, but um, it wasn't anything like attempting Mount Everest. Mm. Yeah, incredible views and just a a humbling landscape. Yes, and to meet up with the Kashmiris who just went out and herded their goats, and I was invited to one of their tents for a cup of tea at one time, and we could only really communicate with hand signals. The children knew to say um, "bakshish." So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there were little capitalists up there yeah. in the Himalayas. And I'd stayed on a houseboat in Kashmir for about a week before I joined. So I went earlier than the group that I'd joined. And um, fascinating to have a family look after me who lived on a smaller houseboat than the one I had to myself. Um, the young lad who brought my meals, I taught him some English. He would come and spend quite a bit of time with me counting learning to the days of the week. and mm. Yeah. I think it's some sort of place that everyone should go once, at least. Absolutely. And just, if for no other reason, to build some appreciation. But understand the contrast between the appearance of wealth and actual richness of life. Yes. Because I know, on paper, I'm wealthier than the majority of people in, in India, but I'm not so confident that the richness of my life is comparable because, you know, they, they live such a communal lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that struck me the most there was the unbridled generosity yes. from people who had almost yes. nothing left to give. 
and they'd give you that. Yeah, I remember being invited to individuals' homes to share an apple because mm-hmm. <laughs> I had an apple and they yes. wanted to share that one apple. Yes. Uh, and it was yes. just so humbling to think of how relatively easy I had it and how, at that time, how Scroogeish, mm. uh, my inclinations were, and then the way our society, yes. uh, I think, kind of protects our wealth. Yeah, it's like that's mine, and I'm going to keep it until I need it, as mm. opposed to it's my. It, well, it's not even mine. No. There is this item, and we can yes. all benefit from yes. it. It's a, a different way of being. Totally, mm. India just has more of whatever it is, so they mm. have wealthier wealth of than we have. They have higher mountains, they have hotter days, they have colder days, yeah, yeah. they have more noise. That's more colour, more intense flavours in their food. It just that struck me about India. Sure. It was larger than life, but it was their life. Yeah, life in technicolour. Totally, <laughs> constantly. Yeah. Noise technicolour, food technicolour, etc. And in five months, I only had one day where I was bedridden, um, I had many. I lost a lot of weight. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, just because I couldn't handle the, the heat of the food, um, so I just ate less, which wasn't a bad thing. But I knew I'd have to adjust going to India. I forgot that I would have to adjust coming back to Australia, and it was the sh- that's when I had my culture shock. Yes, was returning to Australia and walking into a, a Target store. Just happened to be a Target store where I had this impact of, we don't need all this. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. It's all the same. It's, it, yes, it's just excess. Yeah. And Ramesh and his friends lived together and at the end of the day's work, they would walk to the shops and buy the meat that they would cook for tea that, or, and the other food. They didn't have a fridge, didn't have space for storage. Their way of life didn't require it either. So one of my favourite questions... Generally speaking, it'll be in some car coming mm-hmm. to or from somewhere and I'll get the opportunity to meet somebody from, from the subcontinent. And yes. I always ask them, it's burned in my mind the, the street-focused life. You know, People live out the front of their house with each other and their neighbours mm-hmm. and walking past and you see people just sitting holding hands and talking and playing games and etc. Um, and then I'll be sitting in a, in a vehicle driving from the city to my house and literally see not a not a yeah. single person. Yes. And I, I have to ask the the driver, it's like, what's the culture shock for you like? Because you're used to such noise and commotion and mm. intensity to this. If there's such a thing as a human desert, mm. this is it. There's no one here. Yes. <laughs> um, and yeah, they often tell me that it's a real sense of loneliness of sorts can come from that until yes. they adjust to it. That, yes. Uh, so would you say that your experience in, in India, like understanding what a, a spiritually rich environment India is and now knowing about your um, sort of more traditional Anglo church-based upbringing, did, did that inform your outlook in any way? Did it add more to your tool bag, so to speak? Definitely. Uh, so as I mentioned, this friend Ramesh, uh, worked for World Vision. World Vision is a Christian organisation. And it was interesting that while here in Australia many people were turning to Eastern religions, yes. um, he was able to point out that some Hindu schools called themselves St Paul's or St David's because Christians had a good reputation. So that was one interesting ap- aspect. 
how we, the grass is greener. Yeah. yeah. Um, another aspect was uh, the ease with which Indians use the word God and refer to a spiritual aspect of life so comfortably. And Australians, I'd always felt some internal embarrassment about... Yeah. Perhaps there's something a bit weak-willed about uh, going to... Or, to, or goody-two-shoes or sure. different... T- assumptions of how you were seen. So I felt much more comfortable about using the word God. And I certainly came back to Australia and was pretty lost. And the next year after that long service leave, I wondered about resigning from teaching. Mm -hmm. But, and I considered applying for jobs, but I think because I was feeling fairly lost and where, where do I fit? And so that by the end of that year, uh, I thought, I don't know where I'm at. A friend had invited me to house sit for her in Melbourne, so I left Shepparton for the school holidays and I thought, I've really never committed myself to prayer. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll try that. And my prayer was simply, I don't know where I'm at and I need some guidance. And it felt like it wasn't a matter of sitting down and conscientiously writing pros and cons with my mental capacity. It was a real surrender. And there was a response. I started to wake up. And I'd say there I was in my later 30s for the first time in my life with the capacity that I could make decisions. I'd lived up under such, you know, in a disciplined system. Yes. Other people were the experts. We have specialists for everything. And I woke up to the fact that I was the specialist for my life. Yeah, yeah. And actually nobody else is Mm. to the degree we interact with others. And so as I moved into 1985, I'd made some decisions that were fairly dramatic, ended a relationship and... I went to back to school on top of the world. Yeah. I was a new person. I, I understood the term born again. It just made sense. It wasn't something I had to do. It was just how I was. I mm-hmm. was alive. And I saw an advertisement in the, the age for a day of lectures on preventative health. Right. And I thought, I'm really interested in holistic health and, you know, the idea of that not, I don't just need tablets or something. Mm-hmm. There's something else needs to go on with healing. That, that old adage of, you know, prevention's better than a Abs- cure. Yes, yes. makes a lot of sense. It does. And I went to this day of lectures and I, amongst the speakers that I heard uh, offer that day was Dr Richard, Richard Hetzel. And he was a holistic doctor in Melbourne. And he was also the focus point for the emissary group that existed in Melbourne at that time. And he spoke about, of us knowing, back to this notion of being our own specialist. He advertised an event that the emissaries were running coming up and I'd been so impressed with what he'd had to say that I immediately registered. The rest, as they say, is history, but that was 1985, 2nd of March. It was, well. <laughs> it's very strong in my mind. Yeah. And within three weeks, I put in my resignation from teaching with no idea of what might be next but I just knew I had to expand my world. Yeah, wow. Mm. And so you'd kind of almost been at school. 
all my life. Your whole life in one, either one capacity or another. From birth. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes, school teachers. Mm. Yes, yeah. Um, would you mind defining a holistic doctor to to anyone who's kind of wondering uh, what that understand is? Or heard the term and and sort of maybe curious about well, what does that actually represent for you at least? Certainly. So there's often different spellings for that, you know, H-O-L, you know, holistic or W-H-O-L-E approach. Much the same, the wholeness of life comes in. And within two years I was actually the receptionist at Richard Hetzel's holistic health clinic in Melbourne, which he ran with a initially with a herbalist or naturopath and a chiropractor. The AMA had called him up to sort of explain himself. What was he doing working with these? The dark arts. The charlatans, (laughs) in effect. And the interest was in the whole person. What's going on in your life? Why not, oh, you've got the flu, here's a script, this will help you get over it. And it wasn't that no scripts existed, but there was a conversation. What's happening in your life? Often I noticed that as clients came out, they'd often been crying and people were able to open their hearts. Wow. Now so often with a seven-minute visit to the doctor, the heart doesn't come into it. The symptoms are focused on and then there's a Band-Aid put on them. Yes. I think of the symptoms as being a wonderful gift, a message. Something's gone off track here and we can come back to the fork in the road and make a different decision. And sometimes people are probably well aware of the they've taken the wrong track and often people have no idea. It's deeply hidden in their psyche or in their patterning. Yes. Fast forwarding a little bit, yes. uh, you know, now that you've been introduced to the emissaries through Richard, can you tell me about that? those first experiences of, I mean, I can imagine you, you went to a, a group and it was a group of like, hearted people there and you got some comfort or some nourishment from that. Could you describe your experience at that time for us, please? Yes, I found that people were accepted me so quickly mm-hmm. and received me and I can remember thinking, they don't know all about me, they don't know about my faults and I feel mm-hmm. a bit, I need to make sure they're not befriending someone they'll... <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll regret later on. You don't want false advertising. No. <laughs> um, Fascinating to just say that now and to think how much it was important that I let them know. I'm not perfect. They seemed to be perfect. They were so friendly and so open. And there is a verse in the New Testament, the book of John, that says, quoting Jesus, that I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And I love those words. And that's what I saw with this new group of people. As they got together socially, people took turns to play a musical instrument or to sing. Um, there was an ease. They shared meals together yes. and they spoke of spirit. But they recognised a big thing with the emissaries is personal responsibility. So that word responsibility, my ability to respond. Okay. Yep. That's my responsibility. And... Reflecting on that, recognising we constantly have the freedom to respond creatively to something or to go into an old pattern and react. Yes. Don't like hearing that, can't stand the sight of you. All sorts of responses. 
doesn't mean they don't still come up in me, but I am grateful for the, I guess, expanded awareness. And that's what I feel when I come to think of our Sunday services. Um, I long to find ways to have more people come just to be reminded of their magnificence and their freedom, you know, that empowerment from recognising our individual freedoms, that the patterns we have are just patterns. They've come from training, training from the culture we live in, training from family assumptions and expectations and that fallouts occur but they can be repaired. You know, life is fresh and in every day. Suddenly Barbara Marks Hubbard comes to mind who was an outspoken woman on the world scene at 89 and people would say, do you think you're getting younger? And she said, no, I think I'm getting newer. And I think each day when we just face the fact, it's a new day. Yeah, yeah. We can be a new me. Yeah, I remember sitting once with some friends around a campfire and just looking up at the stars. Yes. One of my friends sort of said, oh, wouldn't it have been amazing to be at the moment of creation, like at the Big Bang? And I, mm-hmm. I kind of looked up and I thought, yeah, 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 that would be pretty cool. Then it dawned on me, what do you think we're doing now? <laughs> this mm-hmm. is the point of creation. We're at the, the frothy tip of the time yes. expansion or whatever, we, however it's described. That's but, right. But yeah, that, this is that moment of creation constantly evolving and unfolding in front of us. I hear um, the universe is growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting thought that, yes. that people don't recognise necessarily that this is mm-hmm. the moment that will create the next yes. <laughs> and yes. inform the next, if, yes. if not create it. But something that fascinates me, understanding all of that theoretically, I suppose, but mm-hmm. then somehow integrating that, that theoretical understanding of, oh, this, this is my reaction and etc. Do you have any practices or recommendations that can assist people? Um, because it's one thing to know mm. retrospectively, oops, mm. I reacted like that, and, and I would mm. prefer not to do that again in the future. But as you suggested, you know, patterns have a tendency to repeat. Yes. And I guess I'm thinking along the lines of what's termed today as mindful practice. Being aware of where your attention is at and, and where your mind has wandered to or what it's receiving and how it's responding. Does the emissaries or yourself as an individual have any recommendations around some practice that could be brought in to help stay on track? There's, there's nothing set. The emissaries are not a spiritual group that says you must meditate every day, or you must do this physical exercise. But there are the general understandings of what is creative, what helps. So for some people... Yoga helps. For some people, it doesn't work for them. For other people, physical fitness works. I think that for all people, eating well works. But exactly what that is changes depending on one's age, size, activity level. Genetics and... Yes, so there's... There are emissaries who are vegetarians or vegans, emissaries who are carnivores. And certainly when I go back to the whole health uh, clinic days that I was in, uh, some people took on a way of eating as a rebellion against the way the world operates. And they were often malnourished. You know, Mm -hmm. the comment was made that they would come to see the doctor because we were an unusual clinic. They were chasing alternatives 
almost a reaction against the status quo. So checking motivation for actions is important. I don't have a regular practice no, sure. specifically, yep. and yet I do some of many of those things. And I'm about to embark on eight weeks of being really within boundaries. My eating patterns, don't like to call it a diet. I think a diet is what we eat. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I'd say my eating regime, just to explore. Yes, um, for sure. I feel without that, I can easily can be tempted to eat things that I don't think support my alertness or my physical health or my awareness. I think find what suits you. And I think definitely committing to quiet time. I often find if I have to drive a distance and there's something comes over me with different thinking. A different flow state or however yes, they describe it. Just, it. Yeah. It's my thinking can become more expansive. Certainly needs some quiet time to become expansive when I'm in a pattern of got to do this and then got to do that. Then I'm running on habit rather than freshness, usually. Mm. The quieter you are, the, the more you can hear. Yes, yeah. very much so, mm. yes. It's something that I'm particularly curious about because I, I know that I'm somebody who lived a, a almost polar opposite to yourself. Yeah, My parents were, were very liberal with, um, the responsibilities they insisted upon for me. Mm. I, I really didn't have any. Mm-hmm. There was no great expectation put, placed upon me and I was really given free reign to a large degree. Yes. You know, there was some discipline there, of course. And now it's something that as an adult I seek to, I crave for myself. Not imposed mm-hmm. upon me though. No. I, I do have a rebellious streak and if yes. someone says you must, da, 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 I'll be like, oh, you think so? Um, yes. <laughs> nothing worse if you... For sure, but what I have come to understand is the benefit that mm. I feel from self-discipline yes. and from having some regime or regiment created by myself yes. that I try to stick to and then the good habits that flow from that at least have, have greatly assisted me. So mm-hmm. I, I'm always fascinated to hear how other people are trying to navigate you know, daily life. As an adult, I saw a a funny meme the other day, which was I was um, sitting in a room and a problem arose and I looked around for the adult and realised I was it. Uh, yes. I, I'm still sort of suffering a little bit of that myself. It's like, really, it's up to me now? Oh, no. I relate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'll be in a, in a group of um, people, a CFS volunteer, and I'll look around the group and, and there'll be a particular issue come up and there's a lot of younger folk have joined our brigade recently in their sort of early 20s and, and late teens. Mm-hmm. And a question will arise and I notice all the eyes come swinging around to me because I'm nearly 50 now and mm-hmm. they assume I might know. <laughs> it's daunting to think, uh-oh, mm-hmm. um, I suppose I should know, but mm-hmm. I don't always feel like I do. Well, on the verge of 75, I'm still in that space. Although maybe I'm on the verge of where they think, oh, she wouldn't know. know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess with with that in mind, that's a great segue looking at at the relationships between generations. And I'm curious as to what role that plays in your life. I I know that you're a a very active social community member in in a variety of fronts. And, you know, we do have a, a very young 20-year-old member of our community here at Riverdale. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got a, you know, more, more elderly and experienced folk like Maggie, etc., in, in her 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, 
How does the, the, the mix of generations play in your life at the moment? I feel just so lucky that, that I have friends in every decade from naught to a hundred. You know, my father's cousin is 96 and she lives in her own home in Melbourne, so it's a while since I've seen her, but she will be on the phone next week to me. I'm sure the f- local friends in their 80s got Gracie regularly in, of course, in yeah. my space at four years old. And I hope that's the way my life is for the rest of my life. I, I dread the thought of a nursing home. And I think nursing homes are waking up to just having one age group. There's, you know, there are pe- people who just can't care for themselves. Of course. Yes, if care is needed, we're fortunate that it's available in our society. But I'm... I, as a friend of mine recently said, um, and this is a woman who with her husband runs an olive orchard and they have Afghani workers there. Uh-huh. And she said, I feel that for my, you know, when I can't look after myself, I need to get a flat in the midst of an Afghani community. Sure. Uh, they look after each other so well. Yes. And she was not feeling confident that that would be the case with her own family. Mm-hmm. Um so I think we, as an Australian society, we do have something to learn from a number of other cultures. As We spoke of the Indians before, mm-hmm. this multi-generational interaction where the older members of the society are revered and where it's felt they've got something to give um, to the community in their older years. So I'm keen to keep my faculties working uh, as well as I can for as long as I can. But I thought of some familiar word this morning where I thought I should be able to just bring that to mind and Mm -hmm. it didn't come. Things like that are concerning and uh, I try, I aim for them not to let me, get me down. But yes, it's part of what seems to happen to different degrees as people get older and I I have to support an active ageing process consciously. Well, yeah. you certainly, uh, particularly on a social level, mm. I'm always amazed by, you know, how many people you catch up with when we meet on a, a Tuesday morning and have a bit of a brief catch-up about our weekends, etc. I can't think of too many weekends where you say, no, I didn't do anything. No. You're always out and about and mm. you know, connecting with people. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. We're probably coming close to the to the end of our podcast here. We'd, unfortunately, I'd love to keep chatting. Mm-hmm. As, as some final thoughts or words, is, is there anything that, that you look at today and mm-hmm. have some action towards improving for the future, whether it's in your own life or whether it's as a community, just anything that comes to mind that you think, yeah, here's where we are today. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see a, a brighter future for tomorrow. And yes, you're inviting action and I think what comes to mind for me first is a question, sure. actually. When I go shopping and I'm walking around the streets or I'm watching the news and there are so many social issues yeah. and I feel we offer so much from here at Riverdale. We have the capacity to and I think we have a capacity for loving people wherever they're at. Yes, And I long to understand how we could increase the width of the door open into Mm. Riverdale. 
we can't just, I'm not into conversions. My interest is in supporting people to discover how amazing they are, to strengthen their sense of self-worth. And I battle with this at times myself, so Mm -hmm. I can give myself a hard time. But there's something about the power of the collective, sharing that approach. So that's my question. How, how do you know, I interact with Gracie and her mother, their young people? It's a small break into another aspect of society and it's not as though I'm lecturing them or even trying to teach them, mm-hmm. apart from by treating them respectfully and caring and hoping that that magnifies through their days. Um, but I'd like to f- speed it up sometimes. Sure. <laughs> it is a, it's a, one of the biggest questions I think that I've faced in my role here at Riverdale mm-hmm. as, as a manager is yes. getting that combination correct where w- when people ask me, they'll say, you know, so, so what do you guys do? Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, <laughs> I don't know, we love people. Um, exactly. And it's so difficult to quantify and it's so difficult to demonstrate because we're in such an action result environment and, and that's the way our society has currently framed itself is, you know, you can measure the results so therefore it's it's worth celebrating. It, yes. Whereas you, you, you maybe the celebration isn't focused on the, the contemplation that came before the action mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's one of those real difficult questions. Like, how do we attract people to come and be themselves yes. when they they kind of inherently maybe don't feel themselves as being inherently valuable? You know, it's yes. it's such a, a a confusing and difficult space to offer into hmm. without offering the dogma of a religion or something that people can latch onto. Hmm. It's it, it's a conundrum. It is a, <laughs> it is a conundrum, and I was thinking uh, before this. Uh, interview together, would the question come, who's a spiritual person or something like that? I think if you're born, you're spiritual. Sure. Life is activating this capacity, this human capacity, Mm -hmm. and at death there's a separation. The life is no longer connected to the human equipment. I don't think there's any qualification needed to be a spiritual person. If you're alive, the life force Mm -hmm. is activating your capacity. Then when people claim I'm very spiritual, I think, yeah. what does that mean? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And too often it seems to be too many control buttons to do with spirituality. And oftentimes I, I've discovered the, the need for tribalism as well, is like identifying, attaching your, uh, you know, as long as you're wearing the, the uniform of a spiritual person, then I guess you're really a spiritual person. Uh, I, I remember when I first started my role here, going to one of the expos and trying to represent Riverdale. And I had more than one person go, you don't look like a spiritual person. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay, well, there's an interesting conversation starter right there. I mean, what do you think a spiritual person looks like? That's right. Yeah. I tried growing a beard. It didn't suit me. (laughs) And even if you had, it wouldn't have made you more spiritual. Clearly. Sorry. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I don't believe. (laughs) Yeah. I'm conscious of the fact that we have having a great conversation i don't want to stop it but we do have to limit the time that that we're offering um is there any sort of final statements that you'd really like to to finish on words of hope words of encouragement i'm not sure any anything that comes to mind yes 
the future, I feel, from just looking at the emails I've signed up for mm. that come in that I often don't get to read, but the sense that there are many groups around the world with parallel longings for humans to discover more of their creativity, their joy, their willingness to share, new ways to share. Mm-hmm. Um, I long for those to expand and that has been one of the wonderful aspects of being part of the emissaries is the cross-pollination. We're interested in wisdom from wherever it comes. So it was initially founded from someone who had a Christian background and I think the stories of the example of Jesus amazing as a teacher mm-hmm. but there's a lot of wisdom from the Buddha and from all the religious backgrounds and I'm interested in as coming from the root what really every religion was initially founded on because uh, I've Many of them have become polluted with power struggles and sure. controls. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. It kind of brings us back to that idea of at the end of the end of it all, there is no higher authority, or there is a, no one is more experienced at being Ruth French than Ruth French, yeah. and and so of course we can take advice from others. But at the end of the day, if we quieten our mind down that and listen to our inert wisdom, mm. more often than not. The answers are already there. It's just a case of trusting in them. On any day, I regularly pray out loud for an answer. Mm-hmm. So I open myself to I'm surprised how the process of the answers seems to be speeding up. There's yep. something as though that channel, want of a better word, is committed, you know, I've committed to it more. Yeah. Trusting. Yeah, yeah trusting. Like they say, uh, you, you get very good at whatever you practice, yes. so just be careful what you practice. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like you're you're on the way to practicing a a, a system or a technique that's that's assisting you. And yes. um, I, I wish you all the very best with that. Thanks for the opportunity, Justin. Uh, uh, <laughs> this has been so fun. I, I was very nervous before we started this. The first one that we've done, getting used to new technology. I hope that people listening feel like they've gained a little bit more insight into to you, Ruth, and over the series of these coming uh, podcasts with, with a variety of interviews and conversations that you know, we build a habit for them of touching in with Riverdale from wherever they are. Maybe they're driving their car right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're um, doing the shopping with their, their headphones on. Um, that's how I do my shopping. But, yeah, thank you so much for, for offering into this and for everything that you do at Riverdale. It's, it's deeply appreciated by many people. I thank you for this conversation. Appreciate the honour of it. Justin, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Ruth. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was a conversation between myself and Ruth French. Uh, If you'd like to get any more information regarding the service that Ruth offers, as well as any other programs being presented here at Riverdale, please don't hesitate to give us a call. It's uh, 08-8523-1329 is our telephone number, and either myself or a member of staff will be happy to answer any of your questions. Don't forget to follow us on social media, and if you get the opportunity, check out our website. It's www.riverdale.org.au. Uh, So that's it from me, and until next time, I wish you a wonderful day full of love and kindness.